This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And in Ottawa, the issue of Chinese interference in our elections is heating up. Yesterday, the Prime Minister waded in, insisting there is no need for an independent inquiry and telling reporters that some of their questions amounted to racism. That was his response when asked whether CSIS had warned the Liberal Party in 2019 that they had concerns that now Toronto Liberal MP Han Dong had received support from the Chinese consulate in Toronto. And yesterday, the government finally banned Chinese-owned TikTok from government-issued devices, and that followed similar moves from the European Union and the U.S. And to me, that begs the question, uh, what were civil servants doing watching TikTok at work? And that is a clip from one of NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's viral TikTok dance videos. Both he and conservative leader Pierre Poilievre are TikTok stars who now say they will back away at least somewhat. And we have a few more names of possible contenders in the upcoming Toronto mayoral race. And now... The Recovering Politicians Panel. And now I'd like to welcome George Smitherman, former Ontario Liberal Deputy Premier and Minister of Health, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Glenn DeBearmaker, a former Toronto City Councillor who represented Ward 38 Scarborough Centre. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Libby. Thanks. I hope Hi, you're doing well, Libby. Okay, well, let us begin with this issue of Chinese interference and the way the Prime Minister has responded to it. Lisa, what do you make of it? Well, I think, first of all, we need to be very, very clear. This isn't about the Chinese people. This is about the People Republic of China government. It's the Communist Party of China that is seeking to infiltrate and to try to meddle in our electoral Campaign. I have no doubt that this is exactly what has been happening. I think they attempt to do this all over the world. I think most foreign actors try to do this, but it would appear that they were successful enough that it caught CSIS's attention. So, yes, there should be some kind of political response to this other than calling people racist for being concerned the fact that the electoral system has been damaged. Well, the Prime Minister says there's a parliamentary committee. The parliamentary committee uh, seems to be busy uh, blocking uh, requests for documents. Well, they they certainly have vested interests, though, don't they? Because it may end up having some kind of discussion about whether or not their particular riding or their friend in a particular riding had uh, had received some some influence or some thumb on the scale, let's put it that way. They may not be even aware of it. I don't think politicians or members of parliament are the right people to look at this. I really do believe that an independent look is, look, can I give you one other point, Libby, while I have it? Look, here's the big deal. We belong to something called five eyes in the world. Do you not think that CSIS was also sharing this intelligence information with the other countries in the world. And don't you think they're looking at us right now and saying, why aren't you getting to the bottom of this? And why is this prime minister talking about being racist for concerns that are happening in Australia and the United States already? Well, the the Australians seem to know how to deal with this. George Smitherman, I mean, the other thing uh, that kind of boggles the mind was that the prime minister's initial reaction was, hey, it didn't change the outcome of the election. Well, I think that um, I, I do accept and agree with your point about uh, Australia as a model for at least uh, some of the legislative framework that I think would be beneficial in that case 
forcing people that are working for foreign entities to uh, register and uh, and such. I think that would be might might yet be one of the outcomes uh, from all of this. I, I'd say you know this is an issue that's got legs, whether the prime minister uh, is enamored with that or not. The investigative journalism and uh, partisan interest alone is going to keep that uh, keep that going. Uh, you know, Lisa has that experience from uh, from the national uh, level with uh, global security and the like. And I think um, you know, I think uh, there is a role, but I do think that there is a role for Parliament itself for that committee to find ways to propose steps that would strengthen. Uh, uh, Canada against these kind of risks. But George, what do you think of the way the prime minister has responded so far? Well, I didn't see the clips. Uh, that's <laughs> some people say, "Oh, yeah, sure." I really didn't see the. I really didn't see the clips. But I do think that there is in the in the tenor of discussion too easy a reliance on the word racism. I'm not sure exactly. I didn't see the clip, like I said, but. I don't think that's the place to take this kind of uh, this kind of conversation. I must confess, though, I have seen in my time in politics Italian Canadians subjected to a kind of innuendo-like racism, and I wonder if that's you know perhaps that's what he was poking at. I know Han Dong very well, and I could see why the Prime Minister had a, a full-throated defense of him because I think he's an outstanding uh, parliamentarian, a great Canadian. Uh, but I, uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't, you know, I, I don't think that's a good, I don't think it's a good word for the discourse, uh, on an issue as important as this one. Glenn, what do you think? Uh, <clears throat> well, I think there's two things here. I mean, first is, you know, the general principle, do we Canadians want foreign governments influencing us, influencing candidates or trying to change the outcome of any election? I think we'd all agree. The answer is no. I don't care if it's a Russian government, <clears throat> sorry, a Russian government trying to influence, influence us or an Iranian government or a Sri Lankan government or an Indian government or a Chinese government. Uh, you know, Canada is very multicultural. So these, I'll call it debates from back home, if you will, are front and center here in Canada. They're front and center in many nomination battles. Um, so I, I think, yes, we have to stop this interference, and it's going to be difficult. Because, for example, I, I didn't know who owned TikTok, and I think if you ask the people on my street out here in Scarborough, do you actually know who owns TikTok? Nobody knows who owns it. So we have to figure out a way how we can stop these foreign governments from uh, undue influence on our, our elections. Saying that for the general picture, uh, specifically in this riding, you know, my scan of the Internet and, and looking into it, the, I, I can't actually find any accusation of any specific wrongdoing other than rumors that there were buses busing people into a nomination meeting. And, you know, you have three panelists here. All of us are going to laugh. Oh, my goodness. A candidate running for office busing in supporters to a nomination meeting? I mean, I started off in politics 35 years ago, and guess what people were doing 35 years ago? They were busing in their supporters into nomination meetings. Now, if that was done with foreign money, then that has to be rooted out and that has to be stopped. But the, the, the fact that somebody would say that this one candidate had maybe international foreign students sign up and use false addresses to go and vote for him in a nomination fight, that is a very serious matter. That's something that all all three political parties have had to deal with. Um, so, you know, the fact that CSIS has said we have a concern here, I think is very important and very legitimate. But I also do agree with the Prime Minister that it's up to each political party, the NDP, the PCs, the Liberals, to vet their own candidates. And they make the decision on, on whether there's truth to the accusations or not. And so far, I mean, I would challenge anybody on our panel today. Is there any truth to any accusations? Because I don't see I don't see anything. I don't well, even see smoke. I, Maybe somebody I've, has smoke, but I don't see it. I've, I've seen that. Uh, can I just say one quick thing? And that is uh, Glenn mentioned the uh, reference to uh, uh, false addresses related to international students. I could just tell you for sure, for sure, that the Liberal Party at the national level has, has long since had a pretty vigorous validation of address to name. It's not it's not like it was 20 or 30 years ago. So I don't see how that could have occurred within the rules as I know them very well. Uh, what I was going to say is that I have seen uh, certain reporting on 
Handong's voting record that calls certain things into question. Well, again, in, in a democratic society, I guess you, you again you'd have to look at that and, and question it. But certainly, I, again, I haven't seen it, I haven't heard of it, and I was a city councillor who voted probably fifteen thousand times uh, during my career in politics, and I would probably stand by. Well, I probably I would stand by all my votes. So. Um, yeah, you really have to ask people, why did you vote yes for this policy or that policy? Um, but that's why I, I think on this specific case, I, I'm, you know, I am, I'm very skeptical. Somebody, again, there's not even a fact. There, there's an accusation that a bus showed up at a nomination meeting, which happens, um, you know, at, at every party, at every level, on every election, for every nomination cycle. Um, but so I, but I step back from that because I don't want to dismiss foreign influence. Do I think the Russian government, the Chinese government, are trying to influence our elections? I think they are. they are. And I don't know how to stop that, but I think uh, a legislative committees or an inquiry, but the, the government has to have some oversight to stop foreign players from uh, influencing elections. And, and that can be whether it's from India, whether it's from Iran, whatever country it is, we have to stop it somehow. Lisa, uh, you mentioned the five eyes. Uh, do you think the fact that the five eyes of all banned TikTok went into our, uh, I think, rather late decision to do the same? Oh, for sure. I mean, um, it was the same thing when we were talking about Huawei and, and the use of the Huawei system in our telecommunications networks. We were one of the last ones to come forward and ban it as well. Uh, but for certain, I think those kinds of conversations happen at uh, bigger tables, I would say. But, you know, I'm not in disagreement with Glenn necessarily on this notion that it is up to the political parties to choose how they're going to proceed in their nominations. I agree with them completely. I think the danger for Mr. Trudeau in saying this is what happens if there is proof that CIS is provided to the party that showed that there was a concern with respect to interference? What happens if uh, there is something more than just busting in candidates? Then you definitely do have uh, Mr. Trudeau standing up and, and having to defend the choice of his party to allow it to continue. But I think there's so many allegations, and it's not like CSIS isn't um, a well-equipped and resourced organization that can come up with good intelligence and reports. We kind of rely upon them and to poo-poo away and say that there's nothing really there. I find it a little bit, uh, I find it a little concerning. What about, Lisa, Aaron O'Toole said that they had some evidence and they decided not to release it. Uh, Was that a good decision? Yeah, that's a tough one. He's going to have to live with that one, isn't he, Libby? I mean, right now it would appear that uh, perhaps it would have been timely, but every all this stuff is context, right? And having anecdotal information without having full analysis of of years of intelligence work, they're, they're two different things. So I stand by whatever decision Aaron made at the time. It was the decision that he made with the information he had at the time, and it was his best decision to make. Today, maybe he would look back on it a little bit differently if he knew what he knew then. But nonetheless, it's still valid information to bring forward today. Uh, George, uh, back to the TikTok thing. Uh, What would civil servants be doing with TikTok uh, on work phones to begin with? Oh, heck, I don't know, uh, Libby, but I am spending a lot of time trying to figure out how I can leverage this decision to get TikTok off of my 12-year-old daughter's phone. (laughs) I mean, you know, the like I, I have a wor- I I work for an association. I have a computer. That's a work computer. Uh, invariably, uh, you know, when I'm working on a person, you know, something personal, these things blend over. Why would we really expect that a phone would be different? We live with the darn things in our hand, and a lot of people, including civil servants, are expected to be looking at these darn devices well beyond regularized work hours. So I. I but yeah, it does sound, you know, it's like it, it's a good question that you pose, but I think there's a lot of this blending that occurs, especially as people are working from home and such, perhaps. Well, I mean, one thing I did notice about people who work in government is that uh, generally they are more diligent about keeping the devices separate than the rest of us, perhaps. Well, well, also, you made the point that Pierre Polyev and the leader yeah. of the NDP are TikTok stars also means that the political realm which the civil servants keep a very close eye on what's being said uh, that, you know, some people could argue that they're, uh, that they're doing that for work purposes, following the, uh, 
uh, very many uh, people that have turned TikTok into a mainstream means of disseminating their uh, message or policy positions. So it's, uh, you know, it's a changing world in terms of what works in terms of getting your message out. So well, maybe it's more mainstream than you think. Well, it depends, uh, I guess, demographically and on uh, how well you dance. <laughs> Uh, turning to the Toronto mayor's race, uh, Glenn, you've been a, a city councillor. So we just heard today from former city councillor Rob Davis that he is going to jump into the race. Now, uh, I have to say that uh, he was uh, my area city councillor for a while when I was uh, quite involved in neighborhood things. So I can say he's a good guy. Uh, we have Brad Bradford coming out with a, a list of supporters that include, uh, one of our regular panelists here, Karen Stintz. Uh, and, uh, we have Anna, Anna Bailau is thinking about it. And we have speculation about, uh, Mitzi Hunter jumping in. So, uh, what do you think of all of that, Glenn? Um, well, first, I, I think it's a tragedy that we're actually going to have this election. I was a great, great fan and supporter of, of John Tory, who came from a different political background than myself. But we worked side by side uh, during his tenure, and I just thought he was the, the, the best mayor we've had in the city of Toronto. So uh, it's unfortunate that, we, that we're here. But the, the names you just mentioned are all actually very solid, very skilled, very knowledgeable people. And I, I think it's, it's healthy for democracy to have a good exchange of ideas um, and debates. And I, I think the city clerk's done it very well. You know, they, they're the ones in charge of the system, so there's no political monkey business. It's <laughs> not a fast election. It's not a slow election. The rules are the same for everybody. So I think it's good for Torontonians to look at you know, Anna and Rob and Brad and Mitzi and whoever else may uh, come onto the stage to say, which of these people do we think is the right person to take care of our families for the next four years or more when you become the mayor of the city of Toronto? So those are four excellent choices. And I think the, uh, the people of Toronto will have some very good choices. Yeah, well, and I forgot to mention that Mark Saunders, the former police yeah. chief, is apparently thinking about it. Uh, Lisa, do you have views on the field? And um, right now, I mean, I, people have to actually declare, but if it's a, a big field like that, what impact does that have? Well, I think I think the perspective, and I agree completely with what Glenn said. I mean, John Tory was a fantastic mayor, but here's the reality. It's a uh, fourth largest government in the country um, with a big budget and lots of issues and lots of opportunity as well. So picking the next mayor is going to be incredibly important, especially at this point in time in, in our nation's history. And I'm going to be watching avidly. I'm not going to indicate who I'm going to be in favor of yet because I don't think we've seen the full complement or the full stable of who's going to be coming forward. But I really hope to see somebody with lots of depth the ability to work with stakeholders across all parties, because that's what the city is going to need. And that was my next question. George, do you see a real right-left divide there, or do you see people who, uh, like John Tory, can work uh, with people of all political persuasions? Well, I think what, what I'm, you know, what I'm looking at is to see who what tears emerge in, in, amongst the candidates. I, uh, when I ran against Rob Ford, uh, we were clearly one and two, but three, four, five, six, and seven were all people that one way or another were a known commodity, and the media gave them a lot of airtime, made it very hard for me to get that head-to-head matchup. So as this race emerges, that's really what I've been looking to see. Are we going to see a lot of loyalty to a couple or three candidates who get the main organizers and probably the main money that goes with that? Or are we going to see six or seven people fighting it out to see who can get 21% to win? I mean, I don't know what kind of a race we're going to have yet. That's the thing that I'm watching to form. I think the two most organized candidates of those that I've heard about so far potentially are Brad Bradford and Anna Bailau. And I would say that those people can claim at least some connection to the center. And obviously each of them was probably mentored, if not, uh, maybe there's a better word, by John Tory. So 
a little bit of an answer to a few questions there, perhaps. Well, uh, in on the list uh, uh, for Brad Bradford is Corey Tanike, uh, who used to run the Sun News Network, who ran Doug Ford's campaign. Um, Anna Bailau, uh, I guess, is still uh, being a bit coy. Uh, do you know who would be running her campaign? Oh, you know, I think that there's a lot going on uh, underneath the underneath the waterline. I've had rumors that my very first uh, campaign manager and a dear friend of mine, Tom Allison, has been uh, lending his name to that, but I can't confirm that. Uh, no doubt whatsoever, though, that uh, Bailau, if she makes the decision to go, will have a critical mass of campaign capacity. I don't have any doubt about that. thing about it is, it's you might have run in your local area, Rob Davis, thirty years ago. Okay, um, this is three million people, and when you start to look at those prospects and running from your modest base, it's really daunting. So you know that may winnow out the field because if you don't, if you can't raise seven hundred and fifty thousand or a million dollars in reasonable order. I think you're really, really going to struggle to get yourself out at the lead, as one of the lead dogs. Uh, another question. What about someone like Mitzi Hunter making a leap from provincial to city politics? Uh, is that something workable? Well, you know, it's a, if it gets into the name recognition battle where you've got seven or eight people, you know, why not? She was the education minister, for goodness sake, and she's been elected even in tough times for liberals. That having been said, she's faced with the same decision I had to make when I wanted to run. You have to quit your job. A municipal politician can go and run provincially or federally. They don't have to quit their job. But a provincial member of parliament has to quit to run for mayor. Is that part of the sacrifice package that she's prepared to make? Even in this by-election, she's got to quit? Yes, yes. So is she that done with Queen's Park? I don't know. Well, I don't know. She's part of a like a little rump there. Um, <laughs> For sure. Uh, so, yeah, she might be ready. I wasn't aware because I know the others and what is apparently making it so attractive to a lot of people is that this time they don't have to quit to run for mayor, Glenn. Uh, that That's correct. So if you're a sitting councillor today, you, you can run. Some councillors will say, uh, during the two months that I'm running, I, I will not accept my, my paycheck or I'll donate my paycheck to a local uh, charity. Um, but, uh, you know, if they lose the election, they still have their city hall job. But with the names that we've just mentioned here, uh, none of them, well, sorry, Brad Bradford is a sitting councillor, so he could run, and if he lost, he'd still have his job. But uh, Mitzi Hunter, Mark Saunders, Rob Davis, Anna Bailau, and there's a long list of other names that uh, uh, people are talking about. Uh, very few of them are actually city councillors. I think Josh Matlow is another name that comes up quite regularly. So there's only two sitting city councillors that I'm aware of that people are speculating will run. Somebody could surprise us. Um, maybe Stephen Holiday. He's a very well-respected conservative out in Etobicoke. Maybe he would put his name in the hat. But there's, there's actually, I would say, the majority of people running for this um, office will not be uh, from Tor- Toronto City Hall directly. And uh, let's not forget Gil Penulosa, who's actually uh, just about the only declared candidate who ran second to John Tory and got 18 percent of the vote, even though it was 18 percent of a a really pathetic turnout. Uh, Yes, and I I think that was really the protest vote. There are some people who still remember that uh, John Tory was the uh, head of the Ontario PC party and can, can just never bring themselves to voting for a conservative so that was the protest vote. Uh, I think in this election, uh, you know, if he's if he's at four percent, he's lucky. Okay, um, Lisa, do you have uh, anything else to say about this upcoming municipal election? No, I just like to declare that I'm not running to be the mayor of Toronto. Okay, <laughs> never say never, Lisa. <laughs> George, no. you want to take another George, stab? Oh, George definitely wants to, but there's not too many people around that want him to, especially in his close circle of family. So uh, <laughs> sadly, no. But I have to confess, I did spend a couple of nights plotting some uh, plotting some strategies, and I may find a campaign to try and offer those to. 
Okay, well, uh, <laughs> keep us posted on that for sure. I'm looking at the time uh, clock. It's uh, it's time to wrap things up. Uh, so let's go around the table, starting with Glenn. Uh, is is this uh, is this issue of, of Chinese interference? Is it going to uh, go away or uh, become more heated? Um, <clears throat> no, I don't think it will go away. I, I think I think it's a concern that every single one of us should have. But again, not just with the Chinese government, because if we think it's only the Chinese government that might want to do something untoward in our federal elections, no, uh, there is a Russian government, there's an Iranian government, there's a Sri Lankan government, there's an Indian government, there's governments all around the world. Um, and there are, are players, if you will, all around the world that want to influence the outcome of our elections. And somehow, we have to make our citizens aware of that. So when we go to vote, we vote with our eyes wide open and understanding where some of this this noise or or or, or uh, recommendations or endorsements might come from. Uh, George, uh, can this hurt Trudeau? Oh well, everything is a management opportunity, isn't it? I mean, uh, this is a very very challenging issue for the people that are called issues managers uh, because. There's so much attention of investigative journalism, and one one small tentacle of a story could uh, still end up uh, at the lead of newscasts and like. So I think it is going to be a further test of the management capabilities of the uh, of the government. And I think Glenn makes an excellent point, which is we're talking about the Chinese threat, but we know not that long ago we were talking about the Russian threat, etc. So I do think at the end of the day, it's going to force the government's hand, in a sense, uh, to bolster uh, Canada's defenses in this regard. Lisa, last word to you. Last word would be, I don't understand why the Prime Minister is pushing back so hard on this issue. It would just be so easy for him to throw this all into a process and, and kind of dust his hands and say, now that we're in a process... The more he he um, the more he pushes back, and the stronger he pushes back. I don't think it's beneficial for him. I think it just continues the story, and it doesn't need to continue. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, George Smitherman, Glenda Beermaker, and Lisa Rate. We'll talk again soon. Bye bye. Bye. Thank bye, you. Everyone. Okay, we are taking a quick break, and when we come back, it's Shingles Awareness Week. This is a very potentially painful virus that targets Zoomers. Uh, we will have three experts and the phone lines will be open. You can call with your questions. Before we go to break, the numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we will be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is Shingles Awareness Week, and while it is not life-threatening, shingles is a viral infection that targets Zoomers, and it can certainly impede your quality of life. It causes a painful rash that can occur anywhere on the body, and it is caused by the varicella zoster virus, which is the same virus that causes chickenpox. And after you've had chickenpox, the virus stays in your body for the rest of your life. Years later, the virus may reactivate as shingles. The good news is there are vaccines that can prevent it. So the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free one 866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Dr. Tony Mazzuli, Microbiologist-in-Chief at Sinai Health, Dr. Alon Vaisman, an epidemiologist at the University Health Network, and Dr. Kim Feldman, Program Director of the Women's Health Scholar Program at the University of Toronto's Department of Family and Community Medicine. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Dr. Feldman, uh, you have a family practice. Uh, how common, uh, how, how much shingles do you see? I see a ton of shingles, and it's interesting because about a third of Canadians will end up having it. Of course, as you mentioned, more common as you age, or certainly um, when people's immune systems are down. Um, but we see it at all different stages of presentation, so sort of from the 
pre-existing um, uh, tingling or pain prior to the rash, and then the rash, and then certainly as things resolve, it presents at all times. Mm-hmm. And uh, who would you say is most at risk? Uh, certainly, you know, we talk about people over 60, but it's even more um, common sort of the older you get and certainly can happen younger if your immune system is compromised. Um, and certainly if you're older, if your immune system is compromised as well. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Mazzulli, um, you're the microbiologist in chief at Sinai Health. Uh, how many people end up in hospital because of it? Not a, a large proportion. The ones we see tend to be, as Dr. Feldman said, those with a, a weakened immune system or those who are uh, very old, generally over the age of about 70, 75. Um, younger, healthy people uh, who get shingles or present with shingles generally are managed as outpatients in the community. And Dr. Vaseman, what is the range of severity uh, that that you see when it comes to shingles? So the majority of people will have a mild form that certainly can be painful. Uh, it'll look like a strip across the body, one half of the body with lesions that are certainly can be painful or itchy. Uh, but then people who are immunocompromised can have a disseminated form, which is that when the virus reactivates, it doesn't just reactivate in one strip. It can reactivate with many lesions across the body. And then in more severe cases, even reactivate and spread to the brain and to the nervous system and cause very severe disease where patients are admitted to the ICU, they're de- they have a decreased level of consciousness, and in, and in some unusual cases, patients can die from having such an overwhelming infection, and that's typically in patients who are severely immune-compromised. But the majority of people will simply have the, dis- the activation in one strip or what's called a dermatome in one part of their body. Hmm. Um, I've also heard about uh, shingles. Uh, you can get it in your eye, and that's really bad for people. Yes, yeah, so it could reactivate in any uh, nerve in any of the body. And so if it reactivates in the nerve that innervates the eye, uh, it can cause a variety of manifestations. And then if not treated, it can cause blindness in the eye. So if you, anyone has uh, lesions uh, across the face, especially in the forehead distribution, it's very important that they get uh, seek care for that because if they do have that, it could be uh, a sign that they have manifestations inside the eye. Okay, I'm going to go to the phones. We've got Jane in Scarborough. Hello, Jane. Hi, how are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead, you're on the air. Um, I'm 63, and I have never had the chicken pox. My mother confirmed it when my sister had it when we were children. She did everything to get me to have it. My brother got it. I still didn't get it. Even when my children had the chicken pox, I never got it. Now, some people say that I can get chicken pox from from anyone who has shingles. And I don't know, should I get the vaccine? Because I've never had the chicken pox ever. Uh, who wants to take that? I'm happy to take that one if you like. Um, I, I get that question a lot in my practice. So, you know, the truth is that almost all Canadians, um, full stop, have had chicken pox, even if they're not aware of it. And the fact that you, even if your mom confirmed that in childhood, the fact that then you were exposed multiple times after that, including your own children, it would be pretty unusual that you didn't have a, a mild case somewhere back there. But if it is actually true that you've had no chickenpox ever, you still should get the shingles vaccine um, because it still can protect you. Now, we go back and forth about this because some people say, well, couldn't I check my immunity to the chickenpox, see if I actually have been exposed, and then if I haven't, I could go ahead and get the chickenpox vaccine because there's one of those as well. Um, and really, on a, on a one-person level, that might make some sense. But on a population level, given that most people have had it, we don't recommend actually getting your immunity check, but just actually proceeding to get the shingles vaccine. Um, and that way, because it's not harmful, it will still cover you, you know, um, and the very small chance that you haven't had the chicken pox um, will sort of become moot at that point. So the shingles vaccine would prevent me from chicken pox as well, should any of my grandchildren get it? Um, well, it's, again, it's against, um, not necessarily, but because it's more against the reactivation. So if you truly haven't had it, it will protect you more against um, 
the shingles itself rather than the chicken. And if you truly haven't had it, then we would recommend the, the chicken pox vaccine. I don't know if anyone else wants to comment on that one. Uh, okay, let's move on to Ron in Cornwall. Hello, Ron. Hey, Libby. I had shingles, and I'll tell you, it was a living hell. Yeah? How yeah, long? so I got, I got the vaccine for shingles now. My my late doctor, she said she vaccinated me against everything but Ebola. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. There's a, an endorsement for getting the vaccine. Uh, I have a... a uh, some questions about the vaccine. So there was, uh, there are two different kinds of vaccines. One was the earlier one. So uh, doctors, who wants to explain the difference between the two? Sure. sure I, I can, I, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> just one thing to clarify that it's kind of confusing with Zoster. It's, as far as I know, it's the only infection where we vaccinate people who already have the infection currently in their body. So to clarify, when you're a small child, you're often exposed to this virus the virus you acquire, you get the chickenpox lesions everywhere in your body. Then the virus goes quiet or what we call latent. And essentially after that, just like all the other herpes viruses, it's incurable. It lives in your body until the day you die. And what sh- chickenpox does later on in your life, it reactivates, as I mentioned, as a, in one strip of your body or, or if you're very sick, disseminated. So it, what it does is it creates this, these lesions on your body, and that's what we call the shingles. But what happens is that later on in your life, because your immune system becomes weaker, it's more likely to reactivate. So one way we can prevent that is to vaccinate you. And it's sort of confusing why we would do that, because, you know, why would you vaccinate against the disease that's currently living in your body? The reason is to kind of remind your immune system of this virus to protect you from that reactivation. So in people above the age of 50, it's recommended to get vaccinated. In Ontario, uh, it is covered in certain age groups to prevent that reactivation. As a result, you can get pain from that. And sorry, just to answer your question about the Shingrix. So essentially, we had Zostavax, which was used previously, but a new vaccine that was rel- relatively newer in the last decade called Shingrix was developed that is more effective at preventing reactivation and pain. It's also more safely, can be more safely used in patients who are immunocompromised. Okay. Uh, let us take one more before the break. Uh, we're going to continue with this uh, for the rest of the show, by the way, people. Okay. Doreen in Kingston. Hello. Well, hello. Um, I, um, I I want to say that I had uh, shingles on my uh, one of my shoulders about five years ago, and um, I I didn't have any pain. It was just a rash, and uh, I immediately went to the doctor, and he said, "Well, I was lucky because uh, it had just started, so I was able to get the pill." He said, "Within 24 or 48 hours." Uh, maybe clarify that for me. Um, if you catch it within that time, they can give you the pill to avoid it. But I didn't have any pain. And every time I hear about shingles, it talks about having pain. And the other question I have is, how many times can you get shingles? Because I was suspicious of a rash I had uh, two weeks ago. And I phoned my doctor's office and to get an appointment. And I said, I'm really concerned about a rash. Uh, it could be shingles. So she prescribed the shingles pills over the phone for me. And I asked, if I take these pills, and this is not um, uh, uh, shingles, can it do any harm? Okay. So how many I... times can you get uh, shingles? Okay. Uh, so, uh, doctors, uh, how many times can you get shingles? So I can, I can take that. You, you can get shingles again after having had it the first time. The chances of getting a second or third episode are far less than um, getting it, you know, the very first time, which, as I think Dr. Feldman mentioned, about 30% of people will eventually get shingles during their lifetime. The risk of a second episode uh, is about 5% of those who had the first episode will get a second and getting a third or fourth is even much, much smaller. But it's not zero. And uh, just very briefly, before we take a break, which we have to take, uh, the caller referred to a shingles pill. So uh, once you have it, uh, what's the medication for it? Uh, it's Kim. So the um, the medication can be given within 72 hours, and they're antiviral medications specifically uh, against the virus that, that gets reactivated in shingles. 
Um, and, you know, they don't make it go away necessarily, but they can certainly decrease the pain and decrease the length of time um, that you do have the shingles for. And what's the name of the drug? Uh, there's a few of them. The common ones are acyclovir or valcyclovir, also known as Valtrex. I, I generally use Valtrex. Oh, okay. They use that for uh, cold source as well. That's right. Okay. We're going to take another break. We will be back on the other side of the break with more of your calls, answering your questions about shingles. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's Shingles Awareness Week, and we're talking about shingles, and uh, there are a lot of people lined up with questions. I'd like to start with a question of mine, and that is, if you had the earlier vaccine, uh, Zostavax, I think, should you go ahead and get the newer vaccine? Who wants to take that? I think we all could, but I'll, I'll okay, jump, jump in. in, Kim. Um, absolutely, you should. So the the first vaccine um, was much less effective, and it the immunity probably also wanes around the four or five year mark. Um, but certainly, absolutely, you should get the Shingrix because it is uh, much more effective, both at preventing shingles and also at preventing the most common. Um, uh, sort of long-term issue, which is post-herpetic neuralgia, which is sort of a pain that you can get ongoing after the shingles, and, and it can decrease that as well. Uh, uh, and is there an interval? Like, should you wait five years after you've had the first one or what? I mean, you don't absolutely have to. You know, we like to see people waiting. You know, the, the minimum amount of time would be several months, um, but certainly it's more reasonable to wait a year. Um, and, you know, there aren't a lot of people in that boat anymore because Shingrix has been around a few years. So, you know, most people are already sort of have already had their Shingrix from their historical Zostavax. Okay, let's take a call from Ellen in Kawartha Lakes. Hello, Ellen. Hi. Go ahead. Well, I'm I'm sixty, almost sixty three. I would like to get the vaccine, but I'm afraid to get the vaccine. My partner, uh, without having gotten the vaccine, was brought down in 2020 by GBS Diambare, and it is one of the also rare possible side effects of getting this shot. I'm. Seeing him, I think I'd rather get the shingles. Uh, who wants to take that, Doctor Mazzuli? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, any vaccine or any medication for that matter that one takes, no one can predict what might happen in terms of side effects, and, and certainly GBS is a possibility. And it, it all comes down to sort of a risk benefit and likelihood of um, getting shingles. You know, we heard one of your callers, the severity of their illness and uh, how bad they suffered. Um, until you've had it, until you know, you don't know whether you're going to get a mild case or a severe case. So it's, it's always trying to balance the two. Uh, but in the bigger scheme of things, on a, on a population basis, certainly I think uh, all of us would recommend getting the vaccine. Okay, Ellen, I hope that answers your question. Let's go to Ron in Port Perry. Hello, Ron. Hi, how are you today? Fine, go ahead. There? Sorry, go I'm, ahead. I'm uh, 72. I've had singles now for a year and seven months. I'm dealing now with uh, nerve damage in my right chest, my right shoulder blade. It's like the worst absolute sunburn anybody could ever imagine. I wouldn't wish this on anybody. And if there's a cure for this, I sure hope they find it. I've been on different medications to the doctors. We've also tried a cannabis oil. We've also tried uh, a cannabis cream that my wife put on. We couldn't get it off quick enough. The pain was so bad. And... I don't know whether I, I, the doctor tells me it's nerve damage I have now. I don't know. I really don't know where to go with this from here on out. He has suggested maybe going to a pain clinic. 
I'm very sorry to hear that, Ron. I'll uh, let the doctors respond, Dr. Vaseman. Yes, that, that caller highlights, unfortunately, what is the important side effect that we're trying to avoid here. So in, in most people, the reactivation will manifest as, as as pain. And so the purpose of the the boosting when you're later in life, the, the Zostavax or the Shingrix, is exactly to avoid this outcome. That was the main study outcome they were looking at. And so this can often be debilitating in patients, if especially if the reactivation is not caught in time. So the whole goal is to prevent the activation from occurring in the first place, and that's why vaccination is helpful. So, and just to explain, the, you know, why is this happening? Is it's because the virus lives in the nerve roots, and when it reactivates, it reactivates along the nerve root, so it damages the nerve itself. Unlike other forms of pain, this is directly damaging to the nerve. So, unfortunately, it results in in, in some patients having long-lasting pain. Uh, sorry, yeah, it's terrible. Um, let us. Uh, take a call from Sheila in Toronto. Hello, Sheila. Hello. Go ahead. Sheila? I'm here. Yes, go ahead. You have a question or comment? Yes, hi, yes. I uh, got the double vaccine in 2019, and I had had shingles before that, very slight, and now I currently have shingles in my eye. Oh, dear. So just wondering why the vaccine didn't prevent it. I mean, I'm chronic herpes uh, simplex. I take Zavrax for cold sores, hmm. which I've had chronically for like 50 years. So uh, I just wonder why the vaccine was ineffective for me, because um, this in my eye is very concerning. Dr. Vaseman, I guess uh, you can't, it's hard to uh, answer for a patient that you haven't seen, but in general. Yes, uh, it, of course the vaccine is not 100% efficacious, so unfortunately there are going to be some people who can have a zoster reactivation despite having received a dose of either Shingrix or Zostavax later on in life. The other thing that the caller sounds like they highlighted is, is uh, maybe simplex. So a HSV, which is a herpes simplex, is a virus as part of the human herpes group viruses. That varicella is the same part. Sometimes people confuse the two uh, because they can have, they can both manifest as lesions and they both can activate along the nerves and cause similar symptoms. But herpes simplex is a different virus that has a different kind of reactivation. And sometimes it can also affect the eye in, in, in a rare subgroup of patients. Uh, oh. But what they do have in common is that both viruses are, you get them earlier in life, a high proportion of people in society have them, and they're both incurable. So once you have a, any kind of herpes virus, it stays with you your whole life. Yes, I I I'm aware of that one, <laughs> but the uh, the one in my eye. So the ophthal ophthalmologist I went to at the hospital said it was shingles, but um, okay. So I guess it just doesn't work for everybody. Double yeah, vaccine. so it's about ninety percent effective. I guess uh, that that uh, unfortunate ten percent, right? Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear that. That sounds uh, tough. Let's go to Oz in Milton. Oz, are you there? Yes, it's Olive. Olive, okay. I'm hello, sorry. Hello, hello, Libby. Yes, my question is, um, I had the shingles in June, which I got three days after I received the COVID booster. And also, I'd like to know when I should uh, get the shingrix, having had it last June. Uh, Dr. Feldman? Um, so as far as Jingrix, you can get it at any time now. Oh, so somebody said yeah, I have to wait be, a year. <laughs> for, um, I'm not aware of that. Anyone else have knowledge of that? So generally speaking, you know, what I tell patients are once you've recovered from your shingles and all the lesions are gone and you're uh, back to normal, you can get the, the next dose as required in the schedule. Okay. That's good. Uh, we'll get it as soon as possible since the doctor can give it to me. Um, and the other thing was the fact that I got the booster uh, shot for COVID, had it, that anything to do at all? I, I, res I got the shingles three days after I got the booster shot. That's when I had that any relativity. It would be difficult or virtually impossible. It could have been coincidental. It, it might yeah. have uh, triggered it. it. It's hard to know at, at this point. Yeah, um, and there's time. no way to go backwards and try to sort out uh, whether you would have got shingles 
had you not gotten the booster. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's true. I, I, I just didn't know if anybody had anybody else out there had, had uh, experienced the same thing. No, okay. no clear evidence for that. But one thing we do know is that sort of any stressful event in the body, which you know, any vaccine might be considered a stressful event in the body because it sort of um, activates things for a few days as your body responding. Same with an emotional trigger, things like that. Um, so, you know, if if there was a relationship, I, I suspect it wouldn't necessarily be related to the COVID vaccine itself. So we won't know for years about that, but rather just, you know, any significant change in the body. Um, you know, can be a trigger for, for any of these things that, that can be um, sort of reactivated by uh, stressors. Uh, we have time for, I'll say, one more. Amanda in Toronto. Hello, Amanda. Oh, hello, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my question was um, regarding um, maybe some preventative um, measures that maybe could have been um Given uh, my dad had shingles many years ago, it ended. It started across his forehead. So we, you know, he did go to the doctor. He was given Valtrex, and the doctor had said if the rash starts continuing down on his nose, that he should see him right away because it'll affect his eye. And unfortunately, um, it did affect his one of his one of his eye, and he did lose his vision. Um, however, because it was the weekend, he wasn't able to return to the doctor to see him in time for. Um, like an, uh, a follow-up, but I was wondering, at that time when he was given his Valtrex prescription, could there have been um, something that he could have been given as a preventative measure since it was across his forehead and it was very close to his eye that perhaps could have saved his vision? Uh, okay. Uh, we don't know exactly when this happened, presumably before the vaccines Valtrex is the is one of the uh, drugs, right, Doctor Feldman? Uh, yeah, Valtrex is the antiviral. Sometimes uh, we also can use steroids, like oral steroids, um, in certain cases. But you know, generally speaking, we don't unless it does appear to be a high risk case. Um, in that situation, I probably would have recommended to go to emergency, and they may be able. to may have been able to sort of give steroids at that point that may have helped but you know it's it's so hard because in retrospect it's easier to to know what we could have or should have right Uh, so that can be challenging in any area in medicine well that's right i'm looking at the clock we're out of time uh this has been a very important conversation uh people if you haven't been vaccinated get vaccinated it is very effective even though doesn't work for absolutely everyone. And thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman, Dr. Tony Mazzuli, and Dr. Kim Feldman. I appreciate your time. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Okay, uh, that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.